Welcome back to another episode of The Parlor, a podcast featuring conversations between rhetoric scholars and their students. Today, I, Griselda Torres, a rhetoric and writing major at the University of Texas at Austin, along with Peyton Leong, a mechanical engineering major, will be speaking with Karma Chavez and her collaboration with Hannah Masri on the article, The Rhetoric of Family in the U.S. Immigration Movement. Chavez is currently an associate professor and chair of the Department of Mexican-American and Latino Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. She earned her PhD at Arizona State University, and her current research focuses on intersectionality in queer and immigration politics. But in simple terms, she likes to refer to herself as the queer Chicana feminist and a teacher-scholar activist. So you've been writing about immigration rhetoric for a while. What got you interested in the topic of immigration rhetoric? I was in Arizona for my degree, as you mentioned, and it was really hard not to be captivated by what was going on with immigration. This was in the early 2000s because Arizona was at the time and still is to a degree kind of a hotbed of uh, really extreme immigration politics. And so while I was there working on my PhD in 2004, there was a popular ballot initiative called Proposition 200. And it was basically modeled on California's Proposition 187 from 1994, which was a mean-spirited attempt to take away any possible benefit from undocumented immigrants, uh, whether that's health access, public education, uh, you name it, they wanted to take that away. And of course, the impacts of that would be not just to take it away from people who are undocumented, but from people of color who might be suspected of being undocumented because of the neighborhoods they live in, the way they spoke English, or the fact that they spoke only Spanish. This is primarily what we're talking about in Arizona. So I really started to see these politics play out, uh, and I decided that I wanted to be able to participate in those conversations, uh, both as an activist and as an academic, so that I could learn more and be more persuasive in having a voice in these debates. So you basically were influenced by Arizona and their way of going against non-normative citizens, like I guess non-ideal citizens. Um, So even if you were a citizen at that time, you were still suspected of just because of being of color. So in, in those cases, and what got you interested in queer theory too, specifically? So I was actually interested in queer theory before I was interested in immigration. I went to graduate school to get my master's degree really to study LGBT social movements. And then eventually I got into uh, what we call women of color feminism and queer of color critique, which essentially is intersectional approaches to feminism and and, and queer theory. And I was very much interested in that specifically because of the critique they made of what gets to count as normal in U.S. society. So normal along racial lines, sexual lines, class lines, etc. And how those norms were deeply damaging to even people who could conform to them. So that's really where um, I became interested in those questions. And part of that, of course, emerges because I was, you know, coming out as queer, um, you know, at this time, too. 
So in terms of like this normativity, where did you realize that this was intersecting or not realize, but where did you want to learn more about in terms of like immigration rhetoric and queer theory where they intersected in terms of gender, sexuality, class, and race? So I had started to think a lot about the disparate impacts of immigration policy on, on queer people, on women. Uh, so basically how immigration operates through gender and sexual norms. And so I had begun to think a little bit about that. And then I started reading that other people were thinking about that too. And it really happened where I kind of concretized this relationship in 2006, which is when there were these big immigration rights marches um, all over the country. Some places over 100, 200,000 people were marching in defense of immigrant rights. And this was resulting from what was called the Sensenbrenner Bill, which was uh, Congressman Jim Sensenbrenner from the state of Wisconsin had proposed this really draconian immigration law that would have criminalized not just immigrants, but anyone associating with immigrants. So this brought people out in force. And so I began to participate in these marches. Um, and as they were going on, there was a, a conference that was being held at the University of Arizona, and it was called Sexuality and Homeland Insecurity. And so I thought that sounded like a provocative title, and I went to this one-day conference. And while I was there, two of the presenters were from Tucson, and one was from an LGBT organization, and one was from an immigrant justice organization. And they were talking about all of this coalition building work that they were doing around the connections and intersections between LGBTQ and immigrant communities, even when a majority of the LGBT people they represented were citizens and the majority of the immigrant communities they represented were heterosexual and gender conforming. And so they made this really kind of impassioned defense of why a coalition at that intersection was significant. So I was going to dive into some questions about immigration activism. Uh, but first, I wanted to ask you about you're talking about this idea that not only immigrants, but also the LGBTQ community have to kind of conform to this idea of normalization. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, so one of the ways that this happens is through the idea of citizenship. And so in this country, uh, we have an idea about what it means to be a good citizen. And historically, legally and socially and culturally, uh, citizenship has been connected with white property owning men. In fact, at the founding of this country in 1790, that's how citizenship was actually defined, which meant that if you weren't white, if you weren't male, and if you weren't property owning, you weren't a citizen. And so even though now people don't have to own property, people don't have to be white, they don't have to be male to be citizens, the norms of that construct still obtain. And so that still is the standard of what a good citizen is. And so we can see this in easy ways when we look at, for example, uh, who our politicians are, right? So these are our ideal citizens. They're elected to represent all other citizens. Well, the very vast majority of these are white, wealthy, property-owning men. And we might also add that they're heterosexual and gender-conforming, or at least they appear to be often in public, right? 
And so uh, that's the norm then by which everyone else is evaluated, even if that norm actually has nothing to do with who other people are and actually puts them in a difficult situation uh, in terms of being able to be who they might be culturally or in terms of their sexual identity or their gender, et cetera. So that's kind of uh, what I'm thinking about with that critique. So basically just focusing on how the identity of both communities has changed based on uh, historical ideas of what society should look like, correct? Looking at how even if these immigrants and the LGBTQ community have their own distinct culture and sense of identity, it still gets warped. Yeah, with immigrants in particular, right, they aren't, well, you can be an immigrant and a citizen eventually, right? Go through a process to get there. Um, but even so, you still may not conform to the linguistic norms or the racial norms, etc. And so there's always this divide, right? Um, and that's not fair. You pointed out that your rhetoric pleaded for access to citizenship based on dreamers' innocence. Rhetoric also relied heavily upon images of cute but sad and scared youngsters marching with oversized t-shirts proclaiming don't deport my mom. So just wondering, if this rhetoric was effective for dreamers, why can't it be effective for queer migrant activists? So it's an interesting question. Um, one thing to point out is that uh, dreamers are largely queer migration activists. So uh, the dreamer movement in particular was really catalyzed by uh, young undocumented folks who many were also queer. And so it was embedded in that. The question of whether their rhetoric worked is interesting because I would argue that it didn't work. And so what dreamers wanted, what young people who wanted to find a pathway to citizenship wanted was in fact a pathway to citizenship. And so they engaged in all of these discourses that, that I would call very normative in that they only featured very sad stories of people who were doing everything right, they were conforming to all the norms they could, and yet still the nation wouldn't see them as members who should belong. And in so doing, they actually didn't get citizenship. What they got was called DACA, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. And what DACA does is it provides you with a work permit and it provides you with a temporary protection from deportation. But in exchange for that, if you make one mess up, if you get pulled over for a DUI, if you get pulled over for reckless speeding, if you get in an altercation uh, in, in your home and someone calls the police, that one single infraction puts you right back into a status of being able to be deported. Furthermore, if you're arrested for protesting, now you are in violation of your DACA protection and you could be put right back into deportation proceedings. So what actually happened is they got a very narrow thing, which is a very good thing. Having more permits has changed people's lives. It's absolutely a good thing, but it's not what they wanted. It doesn't give them any pathway to citizenship. And in fact, it took away essentially their right to protest because they can no longer put themselves at risk and the only reason they got DACA in the first place was because they were protesting. So uh, I would suggest that their strategy um, was a short success and people can work now legally, but it was a long-term failure. Moreover, DACA is only available to a very small percentage of undocumented youth. It's something like 30% who are the actual age who could 
qualify for DACA don't qualify for other reasons. So the fact that they kind of played into the idea of what American society should like look like and like those normalizations of like family and um, a stable home life and then that being affected by immigration kind of backfired in a way? Well, it backfires in the sense that one, they didn't get what they wanted, right? So they got a temporary work permit. But two, in choosing their rhetorical strategies that they chose, they actually threw a lot of other people under the bus because a lot of immigrants actually can't conform, right? And they can't conform because they don't have education. Uh, they maybe don't speak the language. They're already poor, so that puts them outside of the standard of normal citizenship. And they might have, you know, a, a criminal record of some sort. And what the dreamer strategy essentially does is it says anybody who has any of those things shouldn't qualify. That's kind of the unfortunate byproduct of their rhetorical strategy. So this pro-child rhetoric has helped a little bit, but it has also caused a huge detriment to others. So can you think of an alternative way to holistically and effectively emphasize the immigration movement that could encompass all groups? So one of the things that you see from organizations like the Black Alliance for Just Immigration or some of the queer migrant-led organizations like Familia, the Queer, uh, queer Detainee Empowerment Project, some of these other uh, smaller organizations, is that what their strategy has been is not to say that we demand belonging on your terms. Instead, it's to lift up the experiences of the most marginalized. And so that's often been trans women of color, often black trans women who are undocumented and who are detained. Um, and maybe they got detained because we know trans women are uh, much more likely to be profiled by police as sex workers, especially if they're black or of color. And so that's how they get wrapped up in the criminal justice system and then in the, an immigration prison. And so what they've done is they've lifted up the plight of those folks and say, if we can get these folks free, that's who we should focus on because then everybody else will get free too and we're not leaving anybody behind. The other strategy they take is they critique the very rationality of, of national borders and the logic of locking people up in cages. They advocate for the abolition of borders. They advocate for the abolition of prisons and say there are better ways that we can deal with our communities. There are better ways that we can facilitate the movement of people um, than the current ones we have. So they don't accept the terms that have been given to them by the U.S. government. brought up the this process in which black women are detained and so there's this book I'm not sure if you've read it but it's called The Straight State by Margot Kennedy and she talks about how immigration law focus on sexuality of individuals scoping out homosexuals with the rhetoric that they are likely to engage in moral deficiency and economic dependency and so like in order to prevent them from entering the country or from remaining in the country they've had these methods such as like examinations interviews inspections to scope out these like behaviors and acts that they'd associate with homosexuality so in your research what did you find about the method, methods used to prevent queer migration activists from entering at the border or remaining within the United States? 
So there's a long history of sexuality and gender being reasons to uh, exclude someone at U.S. borders. Uh, and so the candidate book that you cite talks a lot about that, as do a lot of other historians. So uh, we see this really happening, for example, in 1875, uh, which is when the Page Law is first implemented. And, and what that essentially does is it creates a category called likely to be a public charge. And what that means is if when you're asking to become an immigrant to the United States, if the government assumes that you're going to end up on welfare, basically, uh, they're not going to let you in. Well, who gets determined that they're probably going to be on welfare? Unaccompanied women, right? Uh, women who might end up being prostitutes. Well, who are the women who largely get assumed to be prostitutes? At the time, it was Asian women, in particular Chinese. And so then in 1882, you get the Chinese Exclusion Act, which targets all Chinese laborers, but has a disproportionate impact on women um, who are all assumed to be prostitutes, right? So right there you see sexuality. So that's not queerness like we think of it today, like LGBT, but it's queerness. And then we could map these throughout um, time. Now, as of 1990 in the United States, it's no longer uh, a criteria for exclusion, uh, LGBT identity, right? So that was removed from the federal immigration law in 1990. But it's only been in 2015, for example, where a gay person could sponsor their same-sex partner for immigration purposes. That's when marriage became legal in the United States. Then now you could sponsor a same-sex partner if they're your spouse in, a, in the U.S. or in another country. And the, before that, that was impossible. Well, why is that a problem? In the United States, 75%, well, 74% actually, of uh, legal immigration happens through what's called family reunification. Well, the definition of family is very narrow and always excluded same-sex partners, not to mention other kinds of relationships like cousins and things as well. And of course, you had to have a certain income to even be able to qualify for family reunification in the first place. And so even though technically LGBT people couldn't be excluded based on that after 1990, they couldn't sponsor their same-sex partners. Um, and so unless they had a specialized skill that the U.S. government wanted for the labor force, they had little way of getting in legally. Uh, and so that's one of the kind of lasting impacts. Even today, um, we know that in a lot of countries, uh, there's still rampant discrimination against LGBT people. And so there's a good chance that a lot of LGBT people around the world aren't going to have those special skills in their own country because they've been discriminated there too. And so that makes it even harder for them to come to the United States as well. It does. Thank you. So also just talking about, uh, you mentioned there are different sort of uh, patriarchal views that play into immigration. And so I was wondering if you could talk about, you mentioned quilting as an alternative to some of the traditional forms of rhetorical analysis. And how do you think that quilting or these alternatives that offer uh, different feminist or activist perspectives, how do those factor into the rhetorical arguments made for immigration? And so are you referring to uh, Sonia Arellano's piece yes. on quilting? I know a little bit about her argument because I, I know her. I think 
one of the things that a lot of queer and feminist rhetoric scholars have tried to do is uh, find alternative ways both to um, analyze texts for their efficacy or analyze artifacts, different subjects, whether that's a quilt, whether that's an image or a speech, uh, to analyze those things in different ways to highlight aspects of them that don't get highlighted through what we might call traditional rhetorical criticism. The other thing that feminist and queer scholars, particularly of color, do is they say that certain texts that normally wouldn't be considered worthy sites of analysis, that they are in fact worthy, that they don't have to come from a politician, for example. Uh, they don't even have to be spoken in words like we're using right now, right? They can be uh, objects that um, are primarily visual or even uh, texture and that they can have rhetorical significance too. So it's all about, if you think about, again, that critique of the normative, this is embedded in that kind of critique of the normative, which is to say rhetoric isn't necessarily what you think it is and rhetorical criticism doesn't have to look like what you think it does when it comes from different um, standpoints. It can be something wholly different. You mentioned earlier about same-sex marriage and with this idea of trying to be more inclusive with same-sex marriage it can make citizenship a mechanism of exclusion and inclusion like by by pursuing same-sex marriage you're basically also kind of like agreeing with the law that there should be you should be included but by including you're also excluding other groups or putting that surveillance, that violence onto other populations. So what's your stance on that? Like what, what would be a solution to that, like same-sex marriage legislation? Yeah, so this is a really great question because it's kind of counterintuitive um, what you just said and what I'm gonna say in response to it, which is, you know, of course people wanted same-sex marriage. They wanted their relationships to be considered legitimate by their families, by their friends and by the state, by the government, right? And so now we have it, and supposedly that's the case. But uh, what happens if you don't wanna get married or you can't get married? Why couldn't you get married? Well, let's say, um, for example, that you are a elderly person who is on uh, social security or disability benefits. And if you make any more than a certain amount of money, then you lose all your benefits. And we're talking low amounts, right? If you get married, now your spouse's income will count against your income and you'll lose your benefits. So you can't get married. Well, if all the benefits that we give in terms of a legitimate relationship, like hospital visual, uh, visitation, uh, being able to be on each other's insurance, those kinds of things, if we only give those through marriage, well, now we've excluded that elderly couple. Or what if somebody is living um, in a, a kind of polyamorous situation, right? So they have no interest in being married to one person. They're in love with two people at the same time. And now they either have to choose two of those partners are going to get married or none of their relationships are going to be legitimated by the state. We can also think about what this might say about single mothers, right? Who already, especially if they're of color, right, get demonized and try to get pushed into marriage, the very fact of same-sex marriage might further legitimize their kind of uh, demonization. So 
what could we do otherwise? Well, why do we attach things like healthcare or the ability to uh, designate an executor of a will? Why do we attach that to marriage? Why can't we make contracts with whoever we care about? If two sisters live together their whole life, they want to be able to share each other's health benefits. Why shouldn't they be able to do that, right? Why do we put everything on this one very normative thing to give out all of these other benefits? Um, and then there's no other formation that can get that. So it's just one other example. A lot of universities and some state governments before same-sex marriage was legal, they had what were called domestic partner benefits. So you didn't have to be married, you could be straight, you could be gay, you could get health benefits just as domestic partners. Well, when same-sex marriage became legal, most of those institutions took away domestic partner benefits. So now the only way to get those benefits was through marriage. And so you actually took rights away by creating everybody having to go into this one channel. Rather than just argue for same-sex marriage, what is it specifically we should be arguing within that realm for there to be less exclusivity? I'm a part of this collective called Against Equality, and it's a radical queer collective. And we started in about 2010, and uh, 2009, 2010. And, and what we were interested in was offering a critique of the emphases of the mainstream gay and lesbian movement. And so at the time, the three most important issues to the gay and lesbian movement were uh, one, gay marriage, two, full inclusion in the military, and three, hate crime legislation, okay? And the rhetoric around this was this would protect our community and give us full access to citizenship. Well, many of us were very against all th three of these things. So we were against same-sex marriage because we thought it took attention away from the fact that we should be focusing on universal health care and uh, recognition of any family configuration that somebody wanted to make, that people should be able to take care and have the support of the government no matter their family formation. So that was one. When it came to the military, we said, we don't want inclusion in the military, we want the end of the military because the military is actually deeply damaging to everybody, including LGBT people. So LGBT people who serve in the armed forces are much more likely to be the targets of various kinds of discriminatory behavior, including violence, not to mention, what about all the LGBT people that we kill uh, when we go and do these missions all over the world? So that violence we're against, so we're against the military. Hate crime legislation seems like a good idea, right? So someone commits a violent crime against an LGBT person because they're LGBT, then that person should get an added penalty for committing a crime against uh, someone based on a characteristic they possess. Well, we said all that that does is it enhances the prison industrial complex. We're against the prison industrial complex because one, we don't think people should be put in cages, but two, cages are about the most violent place you can be if you're a gay person. Can you imagine being a gay or a trans person in prison? already a terrible space, but there's an added, uh, you know, place that's worse for queer folks. 
So why would we support a system that's violent to everybody, but including to our own community? Why would we not work to abolish the prison system as well? So that was our argument then, and that continues to be my argument now. Why do we look for these solutions that in the end are actually worse for gay people um, and only privilege gay people writ large and only end up privileging a, a very select few? That's all for today. Thank you, Karma, for sharing your knowledge and research on immigration rhetoric and queer theory. And thank you, listeners. Regarding how normativity has negatively impacted and excluded some immigrants and the LGBTQ community, uh, in no way am I, Peyton, an expert on the subject of immigration or issues facing the queer community. However, even as a bystander, I can still sympathize with the struggles that both groups face. It's important to remember that not all Americans fit into the stereotypical image of the perfect American citizen. Not everyone has a family or wants to get married or wants to fit into a certain organized religion. I mean, isn't that what America is founded upon? The idea that two people don't have to be the same socioeconomic or cultural background yet are still considered equals? And that the point of us being this giant melting pot, so to speak, is so that we have the right and privilege to learn from and about others. So I ask the audience this. If we are so willing to stand by these morals and claim that the United States is unique based on these ideals, why can't we apply them to our everyday practices? Furthermore, why do we use one standard as a way to discriminate against those who stand for the morals that we claim to espouse? Thank you for tuning in. This podcast was produced by Michelle Shao, featuring the voices of Karma, Peyton, and Griselda with the able assistance of the Digital Writing and Research Lab and the support of the Department of Rhetoric and Writing at UT Austin. The opinions expressed in this podcast belong to the speakers alone and not to the Department of Rhetoric and Writing, nor to the University of Texas at Austin.